Welcome to the latest in our sustainability podcast series. Delighted you're able to join us. Today's focus is on COP28 and through discussions with our panelists I'll introduce in a minute, we're going to try and give you a bit of a guide to what you should be keeping an eye on as the negotiations evolve. I'm Matt Townsend, Global Co-Head of the International Environment, Climate and Regulatory Law Group here at uh, Alan Avery and delighted you're able to join me. We have a panel of experts from across the ANA network who are going to share their expertise and views. And let me just briefly introduce them before we get into the discussion. First of all, my fellow group co-head Ken Rivlin, partner based in New York, Gautier Van Tyne, head of the Brussels practice and partner over there, Alessandra Pardini, who's a projects and finance partner based in Johannesburg, Goran Gallic, a partner based in Perth, Joe Clinton, finance and projects partner based in Dubai, and Ing Pung Chin, a senior knowledge lawyer based in London. So welcome to all of you. Just setting a little bit of context here before we get into the discussion, and I should say we record this a few days before the start of COP, so you may be listening in advance or during the negotiations. It's an interesting kind of series, I think, of areas to keep an eye on, but this is probably one of the most talked about COPs in recent years, given its location and sensitivities for some. The prelude has really been quite interesting uh, with the publication of the global stock take, a look at where countries are in terms of their climate commitments, which we will highlight, and Gautier is going to talk about that in a little bit more detail uh, shortly. But that, I think, may very well set the tone particularly for the first week of the discussions. Unsurprisingly, there continues to be extensive discussions and negotiations around financing, always a key and sensitive theme pretty much every COP since we started the UN process, and a clear recognition that the transition will be driven by climate finance and related mechanisms, so critical elements, both from a geopolitical perspective as well as actually substantive measures being agreed through the discussions. Linked to that, of course, is the funding for the loss and damage. Similarly, this is a very sensitive and critical area of focus. It's going to be fascinating, I think, to see where that discussion goes in the coming weeks. I think it's beyond doubt that energy security concerns will play a key part on countries' commitments, what they are eventually prepared to offer by way of update, and associated financing, particularly around any deal on the phase-out of fossil fuels. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And amongst other things, markets and market participants are desperate, I think it's fair to say, to see the finalisation of the rules around carbon markets and the so-called Article 6.4 mechanism from the Paris Agreement. And we very much hope we'll see good progress in the discussions in that regard and substantive rules really still to be fleshed out before that mechanism can effectively go live on a major scale. Finally, we should expect to see, I think, the usual geopolitical dynamics. For instance, how will the US position itself, particularly in the lead to the 2025 presidential election? What's going to be its stance? And of course, not just from the US, but from other major players as well. So with all that in mind, there's obviously lots to discuss. Let's get going. And let me turn, if I can, to Gautier to help us set the scene in a little bit more detail. So Gautier, to the kind of uninitiated, can you just help us understand a bit more about what is the global stock take? Why is it so significant? And where do we stand with it as of today? I'm very happy to. 
Well, the Paris Global Stocktake process is designed to assess the global response to the climate crisis every five years and evaluates the world's progress on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, building resilience to climate impacts, and securing finance and support to address the climate crisis. Now, it consists basically of three phases. It starts with a data collection phase, which actually ended this year in March 2023, on the basis of inputs collected from the UNFCCC, the IPCC, just to ensure that there is a balanced and comprehensive information set across all areas. The second phase, which is a phase that has now been finalized, is the technical assessment, which identifies important technical insights and sets the scene for what is supposed to be happening at the COP28 later in December. And in that third phase, phase three, is really the consideration of outputs, the final phase that will take place in Dubai, where country delegates will discuss the stock takes, technical findings, identify opportunities and challenges, assess measures and best practices for climate action and international cooperation. Now, global stock take that will be discussed at Dubai will focus on three key domains, mitigation, including response measures, adaptation, including loss and damage, and means of implementation and support and finance flows with a specific focus on climate finance. But if you look at the key findings of this first ever global stock take, so the synthesis report has been published in September 2023 of this year, and highlights on one hand progress has been made since the Paris Agreement. For instance, the global temperatures are now expected to rise by 2.4 to 2.6 degrees Celsius by the end of the century, compared to the 3.7 to 4.8 degrees Celsius in 2010. That actually also makes clear that greater ambition and urgency are needed on all fronts to combat the climate crisis. The synthesis report underscores a persistent emissions gap, noting that the current climate commitments are not in line with pathways needed to limit the global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. But it also charts a path forward, emphasizing urgent need for system-wide transformation that can reduce emissions and ensure a climate resilient future. If you try to look at each of the three elements, uh, mitigation, adaptation, climate finance. Now on mitigation, the most pressing that the report identifies is the need to phase out unabated fossil fuels, scale renewable energy, significantly shift transport and industry, and reduce non-CO2 emissions, for instance, methane, but also preserving nature, ending deforestation, and embracing sustainable agriculture are key in this report to enhance resilience and deliver emission cuts. On adaptation, the global stock take emphasizes the need for more deliberate and actionable strategies in adaptation, for instance, by supporting local communities in developing regions, because global warming also creates global inequalities and decisions on climate actions should be in line with the report be made in close collaboration with local communities with special efforts directed towards inclusiveness and technological deployment. And finally, on finance, the report emphasizes the need for funding, mitigation, and adaptation, especially in developing nations, where an estimated $5.9 trillion in climate financing is required by 2050 for developing countries to achieve their climate goals. But the report also calls for new solutions and innovative approaches, like exploring innovative financial instruments, like debt for climate swaps and emissions pricing, to steer climate finance towards the desired goals. Thanks, Gautier. So some pretty stark findings, particularly in terms of temperature increases and the the position in terms of climate finance. So what's your sense as to the impact that that stock take is going to have on the negotiations and 
countries' national commitments on climate? Well, here's a test between theory and practice, I think, and we'll know the answer to that probably by the end of COP, because the Paris Agreement has stated that parties should agree that stock take should inform them in updating and enhancing their climate action and support, strengthening international cooperation for climate action. So it should inform countries, NDC, their nationally determined contributions. And these are targets and actions which are set by individual countries to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And they allow for the assessment, but most importantly, the comparison of each country's efforts to reduce carbon emissions, evaluating whether global and national actions are aligned with the goals of the Paris Agreement. After the GST, after the COP is complete, the countries will have two years to revise their NDCs by 2025. But the way the GST will be framed at COP28 will be hugely important whether or not to build momentum to tackle climate change. Because country delegates will now be discussing the stock takes technical findings, identify opportunities, challenges, assess measures, determine best practices for climate action and international cooperation. And following these discussions, a key political message will be adopted as part of the conclusions. And that will be really the key to understanding whether or not the GST will be more than just an evaluation of what happened or whether it will really be able to support or even motivate countries in developing their future climate actions and support in a way which will be more aligned with achieving the Paris goals. Okay, so pretty significant then actually, and one absolutely to keep an eye on, given the the consequences that it will have in terms of countries' positions and indeed domestic policies which may flow from that in the coming years. So going to be very interesting. Let me turn briefly now to Goran, another clearly key and somewhat sensitive topic has been around focus on commitments to the phase out of fossil fuels. That has definitely been a talking point over the last few COPs. Can we expect the same? Can we expect a high degree of focus on fossil fuels as we've seen before? And I think the other key question here is, are we seeing a kind of inevitable momentum building, Goran, that is going to lead to a clear and kind of fairly bold position on this, whether at this COP or the next COP. What are your thoughts on that? Thanks, Matt. I think, yes, if the discourse in the lead up to COP28 is anything to go by, then I think the phase out of fossil fuels is going to be a pivotal and and I think also contentious agenda item. There are several indicators in this regard so far, including this year's IPCC assessment report, which continues to emphasise the absolute need for a rapid global phase out of of unabated fossil fuels in the near future if we're going to stay on track or within reach of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees. And so the global push for world leaders to commit to phasing out fossil fuels is, is continuing to gather momentum, but I think it does and it will face some stiff opposition from countries that do produce and rely on fossil fuels. So the stage is set for this year's conference to really adopt a clear and united global approach, if that's possible. There's certainly been a lot of growing momentum for the phase out of unabated coal power since COP26 in 2021, where we saw countries agree to intensify efforts towards the phase down of unabated coal power. And that marked the first time in decades of climate negotiations where a COP decision directly addressed the issue of fossil fuels. 
I think it's fair to say that progress since then has stalled somewhat. So at COP27 the following year, there was a coalition of over 80 countries, including the EU, US and India, that advocated for much stronger and a broader commitment being the global phase-out of all fossil fuels. That was actually blocked by oil and gas-rich nations who backed carbon capture technology as a way to reach net zero while allowing for continued use of fossil fuels. And so ahead of COP28, we do see pressure only increasing from nations and businesses and NGOs for a global phase-out of fossil fuels, not just the phase-down of coal. And so another word that's going to dominate discussions at COP28, I think, is the notion or the concept of unabated. It's not a term that we have a clear definition on, but unabated fossil fuels has been at the centre of climate pledges in the past year with the intended effect of allowing countries to continue burning fossil fuels if they implement measures to capture and prevent the release of emissions. Earlier this year, the G7 nations agreed to accelerate the phase-out of unabated fossil fuels. The EU called for a global deal at COP28 to phase-out unabated fossil fuels. Even the UN has recommended phasing out unabated fossil fuels, and experts have called that particular recommendation a significant step and a very strong message in the lead-up to COP28. Not surprisingly, those most vulnerable to climate change impacts, including Pacific Island nations, have pushed for an unequivocal commitment to phase out fossil fuels. And similarly, the High Ambition Coalition, which is a group of 15 countries that includes France, Spain and, and Kenya and small island developing states, are calling for the complete phase out of fossil fuel production entirely. On the other hand, we do see nations such as Saudi Arabia, Russia and China they're very vocally and outwardly opposing any commitment to phase out and in some cases even to phase down fossil fuels. Similar sentiment comes from several developing countries also who do rely on and emphasise the need for fossil fuels to expand their electricity capacity for economic development. Australia also has not committed to phase out and continues to invest in fossil fuel projects. So absolutely, we expect the topic of fossil fuels phase out to have a centre stage at, at COP28. With such contrasting stances amongst the nearly 200 countries that will be attending, I'm not confident that we'll see overwhelming commitment to it. The real focus, I think, will be on what, if any, compromise is possible and what that might look like. Well, thanks very much, Goran. Obviously, that's fascinating. And let's keep a very close eye on that and what's announced. And obviously, there's a lot of interest, particularly given the location of this year's COP on the topic. Joe, if I can bring you into the discussion, Gautier has talked a little bit, and obviously, it's always been a major area of focus on the topic of climate finance. And I think he's recognised that this is very much at the heart of the transition and again, has been a very sensitive issue in previous COP. What are you expecting to see in this regard? Thanks, Matt. Yes, I think climate finance obviously is at the very heart of a lot of what is being discussed. Perhaps sort of to put it in context, there's a lot of debate around the exact amount that needs to be spent to meet the Paris Agreement goals. But I think all are agreed that the number is in the trillions of dollars. 
And that's significantly up from the 2019 estimate. So when you put the numbers in that perspective, I think it's very clear that climate finance is going to be heavily required in order to meet those aims. And as a result, I think climate finance will be looming over many of the topics on the agenda at this COP. I'm also expecting a focus on climate finance at these talks for a number of other reasons. Firstly, there's a particular spotlight on finance commitments after developed nations missed out on their earlier pledge to provide $100 billion per annum in financing to poorer countries by 2020. There is a discussion among the developed nations that that target has been met this year in 2023, although we won't have the data to fully understand that for another year or two. But I think the fact that we weren't able to meet those commitments in 2020 means that finance is very much in the spotlight. Secondly, there's an element of controversy around climate finance, particularly the concept of increasing the debt burden on poorer nations. An off-cited report from Oxfam was particularly critical about the amount of climate finance that was provided by ways of loans rather than grants. And so I would sort of expect discussions at this COP around debt burden and what we can do to alleviate that on poorer nations. Thirdly, historically, climate finance has been heavily weighted towards emissions reduction projects. And I think there's now a growing recognition that more must be done to assist with adaptation and loss and damage mechanisms. And finally, I think it's clear that in the context of the numbers we were talking about, the role of the private sector is going to be fundamental in meeting those investments. And so the need to bring private sector into the dialogue is obviously recognised. And I think, you know, if you look at those contexts and look at the agenda and what's on the programme for this COP, you see all of those themes playing out. So we heard from Gautier on adaptation, and I know Yingpeng will be talking about loss and damage mechanisms. And one of the key financing themes will be how financing can support the methods for adaptation and loss and damage. I know there'll be dedicated sessions coming up on adaptation finance, particularly around sharing of best practices and around how we can encourage more finance to flow towards these aims. I'm also expecting announcements around how climate investment funds can reduce emissions in hard to abate areas as part of a just transition, meaning that poorer nations can continue to develop their economies whilst mitigating some of the worst climate impacts of that development. I think this is going to be very important in bringing those poorer nations along as part of the climate journey, because obviously they are the worst impacted by many of the climate disasters, but they're also looking at their own economies and want to be sure that their climate commitments are not going to get in the way of development. I'm also expecting to see a focus on climate resilient debt clauses. So these are clauses in financings that allow a pause in debt service following a major climate event. And the idea is giving a developing nation's economy more time to recover without having the burden of debt service looming over them. Now, there's a hope that an increase in the use of these types of clauses will assist in alleviating some of those worst concerns that I was mentioning around the debt burden that poorer nations are taking on through climate finance. One of the recurring themes will be around mobilising finance at scale. 
And as part of this, I'm expecting multilateral development banks to be discussing about how they can encourage more private sector financing. I think some of the development banks are actually very good at leveraging their own funds to be able to increase the private sector participation in many of these projects. But I think that certainly some of the development banks could be doing more. And it'll be interesting to see the exchange of ideas and how some of the more prominent banks can help some of the less sophisticated development banks really get up the curve in this area. Although it's a much less exciting topic, I think there'll also be a focus on data in the context of climate finance. I mean, partly this will be in the spotlight because, as I said, it seems that the developed nations will not be able to confirm whether or not they've met their $100 billion of climate finance goal for 2023 until perhaps 2025 due to a lagging data. But even more importantly, data is obviously very important in allowing effective investment decisions, including for the private sectors we discussed. And I think that's especially true in the green capital markets. So a lot of themes. Of course, all of this focus on finance comes amid what is a difficult global economic situation for many countries. And so I think politically and economically, we're arguably in a much more difficult environment for climate finance commitments than we were when the last round of financing commitments was discussed. So whilst no doubt there'll be a lot of very positive statements, particularly from finance ministers about the role of climate finance and how integral it is into this COP, it will be interesting to see what actual commitments are made by the close of COP. Jay, thank you very much. I mean, it's fascinating topics in there. We don't have time to kind of fully explore all of them. Many of those obviously reflect the proposals coming out of the Bridge Chain Initiative, which have gathered momentum, which is encouraging to see. And for those of our listeners that are interested in seeing a bit more of the data that sits behind this, and in particular, the gap in financing, do take a look at our report that we issued in conjunction with the Climate Policy Initiative and indeed our earlier report on financing the gap, which talks about many of these themes. Just continuing with the climate finance piece, um, if I can, Alexandra, if I could just turn to you, obviously renewables and renewable investments and the mechanisms that sit around that are a critical part, as we all know. There's nothing particularly novel about that. Many states have been investing in renewables for many, many years. But are we expecting to see specific measures being announced as part of COP28 on renewables. Thanks very much, Matt, and to everyone for highlighting the importance of a lot of what's going on, and to Joe particularly on the role of climate finance, which will obviously feature heavily for renewables. Um, Matt, it's it's very alarming uh, what obviously is happening, and, and 2022 hasn't been a great year for what we've seen happen between fossil fuels and renewables. But COP28 is very clearly going to focus on the global targets to triple renewables capacity by 2030. Uh, and that means 11,000 gigawatts by 2030. This is a very large target, and this will be a core focus of the COP28 discussions. Um, it's very much aligned to that limiting of the temperatures to the one and a half degrees, and it needs significant financial support and financial reform, as highlighted by Joe. A large part of this is actually investing in renewables for the global south. We're seeing the fact that renewables, both land, mass, space, global populations in the, in the global south will need to be the focus to achieve this target. In a microcosm, Alan and Overy Johannesburg has been involved in 1,300 megawatts just in the past year with Southern Africa North take alone. And that's just one drop in the ocean. But how do we see COP focusing towards that target? 
How do we see the tripling of renewable energy by 2030? And how much money does that need? In plain terms, and Joe alluded to it, there's various pundits focusing at various numbers, but we're seeing that number somewhere around 4 trillion for renewables by 2030. And that's 4 trillion annually of investment. The G20 claims that this can be achieved within the current framework of, of policies today. Looking at the numbers, that doesn't seem possible. Current investment annually is approximately $1.7 trillion, just to emphasize that $1.7 trillion annually on renewables, and that isn't achieving the target, and only 15% is focused on the global south. So where will this come from? How are we going to get from $1.7 trillion US dollars to $4 trillion? We think private sectors, Joe as well, need to come to the party somewhere around three-fifths on, on private sources and two-fifths on public. And trying to understand where that's going to be is also key for COP. Africa is home to three of the five top solar sites in the world. I'm biased. I sit in Johannesburg, so I'd like to see more investment in Africa. And coupled to the fact that Africa only generates 2% of global greenhouse gas emissions, it seems obvious that the investment needs to focus somewhere on our continent. 2% of global investments in renewable energy in the past two decades were made in Africa, and, and that's some pause for thought. 2% of global investments in the past two decades. In the developed world, we see 81% of green investment is funded by the private sector, and we need to focus on redeployment of that. South Africa, by way of example, could not generate privately uh, for own use until October 2021, and we see some of the constraints in the rest of Africa. There were monopolistic legislative measures in place, which meant that state monopolies or state utilities had monopolies and did it all. Private capitals come in since October 2021, and we see, thankfully, heavy industry users accelerating their investment in renewables. To name a few, we've seen Sassel and Air Liquide invest in 600 megawatts in sub-Saharan Africa. Anglo-American has announced a partnership with EDF Renewables called Project Gaia to decarbonize their mining assets. Impala Platinum has done three sites in Southern Africa. Tronox Mineral Sands, which is an American mineral sands mining company, did the biggest solar renewables project on the African continent in the past 12 months. Glencore has announced its own procurement program, so have Sabanya, Northern Platinum, Harmony Gold, Rio Tinto, and Simancol. So the dialogue down here is very much about mining companies decarbonizing. And the funding for this we're seeing predominantly from commercial banks, the odd DFI, but it's really, really small. We've seen one or two green bonds, so I'd like to see Joe come down here and do some more green bond financing, but we are hoping to announce one at the end of this month, slightly north of my border. So COP28 really must underpin the tripling of these renewables with tangible political commitment, cancelling of the debt burden, possibly some concessional finance and obviously grants. But this also needs to be coupled with energy access. And Africa is a key story to this and should take the spotlight. 760 million people globally do not have access and 600 are focused in Africa. So we can solve the energy access crisis. We can solve the decarbonization problem and we can do this all with renewables. The other investment needs to take place in the grid. This financing will focus on big and small mini grids, but we need this too. And then you're going to ask me, Matt, is this all possible or am I dreaming? Well, one of the most important statistics I think we see is that the G20 countries 
provide $1.4 trillion of direct subsidies to fossil fuels annually. And I think that is possibly one of the key messages for COP22. Shift your money away from fossil fuels. We need this money for renewables. But it's not a only renewables investment story. This is two sides of the same coin. If we're going to invest in renewables, we need to phase out fossil fuels. The two need to go together. One of the important things that we're going to hear about at COP is some first mover coalitions. We've got Powering Past Coal Alliance. We've got the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance. We've got the Clean Energy Transition Partnership. And all three groups are committed to moving past fossil fuels and committing to renewables. We're also hoping to see the discussion take place with an additional alliance, the Global Decarbonization Alliance, and that will also set new goals for net zero scope one and two emissions. The scaling up can't happen fast enough, and I think everybody needs to be on board. And when we say everybody, we can't have outliers committing to their fossil fuel investments. Thanks, Matt. Alexandra, thanks. I think the message is clear and stark and the challenge is, is there. For those listeners who would like to see some more detail on this, I would encourage folks to look at a recent report that we have published, Perspectives on the Energy Transition in Emerging Markets, which looks at many of these critical issues in a little bit more detail. But thanks very much, Alexandra. Right. Continuing on on the finance side, obviously there's a, there's a huge amount within this topic, which we can't do justice to. But an area that has been talked about already and that has previously been a sensitive topic in COPs has been around the loss and damage mechanism. Ingpunk, can I bring you in? Just help our listeners to get a more detailed picture as to what, if any, progress has been made since the last COP on loss and damage and what do you expect to see in terms of further details emerging in Dubai? Thanks, Matt. So taking a step back, the loss and damage fund is indeed a sensitive issue, as you said, given the conflicting interests that are at play between different countries. It is an important issue to get right, as it is key to fostering cooperation across other climate actions. There's also a moral imperative to ensure that vulnerable countries are equipped to deal with the unavoidable adverse consequences of climate change. As many will recall, COP27 saw a breakthrough agreement to establish new funding arrangements as well as a dedicated fund to assist developing countries in responding to loss and damage. Since COP27, important progress has indeed been made. The Transitional Committee has produced, just in time for COP28, a set of recommendations on how to operationalise loss and damage funding arrangements and the fund. That's a good start, as the recommendations will form the basis of discussions at COP28, with the aim of producing a final approved text. However, negotiations at COP28 will not be smooth sailing. There are a number of tricky issues, such as who should contribute, the size of the fund, the timescale for providing funding, who should benefit and when they can draw from the fund. Taking each issue in turn, first at COP28, there will likely be continued negotiations over the description of different parties' involvement. Developed countries are keen to ensure that the funding is provided on a voluntary basis. The draft text provides that the fund is based on cooperation and facilitation and does not involve liability or compensation. This provision is likely to be retained as any suggestion otherwise will be a deal-breaker for developed countries. In terms of who will contribute, 
The fund is expected to be set up to receive from public, private and innovative funding sources. Developed countries are currently expected to take the lead in providing funding to kickstart the fund. Wealthier developing countries will also come under pressure to make contributions. In practice, innovative sources may include taxes or levies on fossil fuels, the voluntary carbon markets, philanthropic sources and NGOs. Closely tied to the questions of who should pay and the nature of parties' involvement are the questions relating to the size of funding and the timescale for providing it. These issues will be agonised over at COP28, and the failure to arrive at a consensus will mean kicking the can down the road, which translates into delays in implementing the fund. Developing countries are calling for a minimum commitment of $100 billion a year in loss and damage funding by 2030, but this figure appears to fall far short of the costs that are expected to be incurred to cope with loss and damage. At present, parties such as the EU, Denmark, the UK and US have indicated their readiness to make substantial contributions, but specific figures have yet to be revealed. On the question of who will be the beneficiaries of the fund, the draft text states in general terms that developing countries that are particularly vulnerable to the adverse effects of climate change will be eligible to receive sources from the fund. However, this wording is open to interpretation. The specific eligibility criteria will likely be hotly debated at COP28, particularly by middle-income countries who do not want to be left out. Relatedly, there are also questions around when and how countries can draw from the fund. The draft text currently provides that in-scope scenarios would include responding to extreme events and slow-onset events, but it will be for the fund's supervisory board to come up with a resource allocation system. The mechanics of this resource allocation could be up for contention at COP28. If not, this issue will be held over for debate within the supervising board at a later stage. It's key to note that negotiations over these important aspects may threaten to hold up the implementation of the fund. So going into COP28, it's encouraging that parties are prepared to face the challenges of gaining consensus over the loss and damage fund. In the Sunny Lands statement, the US and China have taken the view that a global stocktake decision should welcome the recommendations of the Transitional Committee. Several developed countries, as I mentioned, have also expressed readiness to make substantial contributions. Hence, there are reasons to be optimistic about COP28 resulting in a final text being agreed and concrete financial pledges being made. These will pave the way for implementation and distribution of funds. Failure to agree on the loss and damage fund would be a roadblock for successful climate negotiations, and none of the parties can afford to be in this deadlock situation. Ying Peng, thanks very much indeed. Two other topics I quickly want to deal with before we wrap, both of critical importance as part of the discussions. So I mentioned right at the beginning the development around carbon markets, and there continues to be a lot of discussion around the new carbon trading mechanisms created under the Paris Agreement, so-called Article 6.4 mechanism in particular. Gautier, can I come back to you on this one? And what's your sense as to whether we're going to see, finally, the detailed substantive rules fully agreed and markets start to function in the way I think we're all hoping? That's a great question, man. I think we may have asked ourselves the same question last year. And I will try to say something different than what we said last year, but some of it will sound familiar. Now, maybe a brief introduction. So there's 
famous Article 6 that aims to incentivize international cooperation in implementing NDCs through various mechanisms. You have Article 6.2, which is genuinely a mechanism that only is fit for dealing between countries where one country's greenhouse gas emissions can be swapped with another country's that then can reduce its NDCs via what is called internationally transferred mitigation outcomes. But Article 6.4 of the agreement is a different animal and has been highly anticipated and expected for a number of years now. Under that mechanism, a multilateral carbon credit market that would be overseen by a supervisory body would indeed exist, in which project developers will have to seek approval from host countries, respective greenhouse gas mitigation activities, before making an application to the supervisory body. And once approved, carbon credits will then be issued in respect of greenhouse gas reductions, which may then be transferred to other countries, or actually may be used, and it's probably more important use, for other climate change mitigation purposes. Now, there's been a number of issues that have been outstanding over the past couple of years. They always come back, some of them get solved. For instance, what is the possibility or the eligibility of RED+, plus acronym which talks about reducing emissions from deforestation, forest degradation, and developing countries' activities. But also, what about human rights safeguards? And that's a difficult one, because at COP27, there has been a little bit of guidance on, indeed, human rights safeguards. But this past year, a lot of uh, stakeholders have been asking to review those rules and look specifically at recommendations to be amended to explicitly include human rights and actually also make sure that not only human rights are respected, but actually that a genuine public participation process and a public inquiry process and a public consultation process be not only dealt with, but also validated, which would then lead to monitoring plan that can be followed up over and over and over again. Another big discussion point is always about the grievance mechanisms. The Article 6 rulebook, as it currently exists following the previous COPs, refers to an independent grievance process that allows people and communities that would be negatively impacted by an Article 6.4 carbon crediting project, but also would allow other stakeholders to appeal decisions of the supervisory body or request that a grievance be referred to an independent body. Those are known and existing issues. What is currently happening? Well, on November 18, the body that is actually tasked with supervising the creation of Article 6.4 trade mechanisms has agreed on two sets of recommendations. And those are very important because they're very concrete. They're decently well spelled out and it will have to be adopted at the COP in the next couple of weeks. One is a critical guidance on greenhouse gas removals. The other one is on mechanism methodologies. But the greenhouse gas removals are actually credits that will be generated by projects that remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and that destroy or durably store them. And obviously, specifically when you look at these kind of projects, a number of questions, which are maybe not that different from other types of Article 6.4 projects, but that always pop up, are about reversals. So reversals, actually, that tries to look at the requirement that any greenhouse gas mitigation benefit in respect of which carbon credits are issued are not reversed due to unforeseen events or earthquakes and also looks at leakage leakage which occurs when a carbon credit shifts emissions from one location to another rather than achieving a net decrease in emissions and that has been spelled out in this draft guidance and i'm actually reasonably positive this time that this will be adopted maybe with some minor changes Although some of the critical points that I just mentioned on the grievance mechanism or human rights protection are not very well dealt with, or at least not very explicitly dealt with in the guidance. And the second guidance adopted is on the methodologies. And again, 
these methodologies look at a number of things which are pretty familiar for those who work in uh, these carbon mechanisms, like, for instance, leakage, permanence, additionality, always a big issue, but also looking at what role a host country can have. And so with that in mind, with these recommendations having published on November 18, I think there's quite a few things that can be discussed at COP, but there's also a lot of a huge baseline, I think, in order to be able to come to results and finally kickstart this uh, Article 6 uh, mechanism. Well, that sounds very positive, GSPA. So let's keep a close eye on that as things evolve in the coming days and weeks. Ken, can I bring you in to look at the U.S. position here? So what priorities do you think the U.S. has coming into the discussion? Thanks very much, Matt. There are five key things to look out for from the U.S. perspective. First, the U.S. will be pushing for renewed focus on non-carbon dioxide emissions. The U.S. has been moving to regulate methane emissions in the U.S. and is lobbying for its allies to take similar action. There are a number of reasons for this. Chief among these is the disproportionately high impact that methane has on global warming. A lesser, but only slightly lesser, reason is that the U.S. is not yet prepared to fully commit to phasing out fossil fuels. Making methane a priority is meant to show some meaningful action and blunt criticism on the fossil fuel position. Second, and related to this first point, the U.S. will be looking to use climate issues as a vehicle for smoothing out the bumps in its relationship with China. Just a few weeks ago, the U.S. and China released a joint climate statement that included a commitment to redouble efforts to regulate methane. We expect to see additional initiatives designed both to achieve positive climate outcomes and demonstrate shared leadership and cooperation with China. Third, the U.S. is looking to promote climate investment partnerships with a number of countries in Asia and around the world. Just last week, the U.S., Japan, and others announced a new climate investment partnership with Indonesia the Just Energy Transition Partnership. With an initial pledge of $20 billion, the JTEP parties aim to reduce carbon emissions by 100 million metric tons and to increase renewable energy share from 12% to 44%, all by 2030. We can expect to see similar initiatives in the coming period, especially in those parts of the world that, like Indonesia, are at the early stages of their energy transition journeys. Fourth, Regarding funding for loss and damage, a number of questions remain about how this will be implemented, including where the fund will be held, which countries will receive funding, how contribution obligations will be enforced. The U.S. and the EU have been advocating for the World Bank to hold these funds, which China and others oppose. It is critical that progress be made on this front. Fifth and finally, U.S. Climate Envoy John Kerry is expected to announce a new nuclear fusion energy campaign at the COP. Having been to several of the past COPs myself, it has been notable to see the increasing focus and attention that nuclear energy has been receiving. We expect there to be continued focus on nuclear as part of the global energy solution and for the U.S. to increasingly advocate for this. Okay, thanks very much, Ken. That's fascinating. Again, something very much to keep a close Ion. So I think our time is up. Clearly, there is an awful lot to be debated at the COP, as there always is. A lot of critical issues and priorities. We are always optimistic in terms of what can be achieved, but likewise, we are realistic. So let's just hope that we see very positive progress across many of the initiatives that we've touched upon. And we've by no means tried to be exhaustive in this we couldn't do that justice in the time given so uh, what we try to do is peel off some of the bigger themes and areas of interest which i think will have the most bearing 
We've also resisted the temptation to speculate on the outcomes of COP. That's always a, a highly dangerous thing to do. And in fact, we will be having a webinar shortly after the end of the COP to share our thoughts in terms of what has been achieved and what has not been achieved, what's been left behind on these and uh, some of the other themes that will no doubt be discussed. So uh, further details to follow on that, but please do join us for that uh, webinar if uh, at all possible. So I think that just leaves me to thank our panelists for sharing their thoughts and insights. Very, very interesting. And thank you very much for listening. Have a good day. Goodbye.